Well, in this room, there is diversity. Diversity of culture, diversity of ethnicity, family traditions, hobbies, vocations. But there are two realities that everyone in this room shares. Two realities that we all share. And it's life and it's death. Life and death are two fundamental human experiences that unite all humans across history, no matter ethnicity and no matter class. I mean, everyone in this room is physically living, alive, breathing, moving. We have this in common. But at one point, everyone in this room will die. Life will stop. Breathing will stop. Moving will stop. I was reminded of this recently as I watched my my own mom go from a woman full of life and vitality and vibrance over the course of 60 days, slowly wither away and die. Death is a fundamental human experience that we all one day have in common. And there's nothing we can do about it. Life is a vapor. Death is coming. Our days are numbered. We will all leave this earth in one way or another. We will lose everything in this life. And we will likely be forgotten in three to four generations. We are not indispensable. It's a jolting and sobering truth, isn't it? It has been said that death makes a statement about who we are. We are not too important to die. We will die like all those who've gone before us, and the world will keep moving just as it always has. Now, you may be thinking, oh, really? I came to church today to hear this? I came for a dose of happy. I came for a dose of joy. Really? But here's the thing, if we don't think deeply about physical death, we will not think deeply about physical life. The same goes for spiritual death and for spiritual life. And if we avoid thinking deeply about our spiritual death outside of God, we will not think deeply about the truth of who God is, nor what he has done and is doing for dying people in this room, dying people like you and I. And if we avoid the truth of death, we will not think deeply about what it means to walk together in life, grace, peace, and unity. And our passage this morning is a wake-up call to all of these realities. So if you have your Bible, please open to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the letter of Ephesians today, jumping back into our summer series in this letter. It's about halfway through the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a chair near you. You can find it on page 917. We're going to be walking all the way through chapter 2 today, and you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage. We'll start by reading the first 10 verses. 
and then we will press in and press on with our time together. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. All glory be to God. Let's say that together. All glory be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to to dive into this chapter. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. Open the eyes of our hearts. Renew our minds. Give us spiritual sight to behold the glory of Jesus this morning. Strengthen your imperfect and weak servant now, O Lord. And we plead with you that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. We pray all of this in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thus far in the book of Ephesians, let me orient us for a moment. Thus far in the book of Ephesians, Paul has called us to behold the wondrous mystery, glory, and wisdom of Christ in the church, in and through the people of Christ, the church. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we heard Paul's praise song, his worship song about how the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has gloriously redeemed and blessed his people in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Then we looked last week in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul moved us further into worshipful benediction and Christ-centered exaltation and showed us how praise and power belong together. Praise and prayer belong together in the Christian life. And in our passage this morning, Paul goes even further. He goes even further, and he presses us to see who God is and what he has done in and through Christ for the church. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's the big idea of all of Ephesians 2. Here's the big idea of this chapter. By grace, God mercifully makes the dead alive and the stranger a citizen and saint. By grace, God mercifully makes the dead alive and the stranger a citizen and saint. Praise God. And in our text this morning, Paul makes this abundantly clear by showing us how God has done this transforming work, this life-giving work, this church-unifying work 
in Christ by the power of the Spirit. So let's dive in. Point one, from death to life. The Western world is a strange place. What I mentioned earlier, the reality of death is awkward for most. Probably feeling a little awkward as I was talking about it. We avoid the topic of death at all costs. We have modern medicines that make us live longer. We have creams and lotions, surgeries that regress and suppress aging. We have even effectively sanitized death by relegating it to a a space, to a hospital room or a hospice facility. We've created sacred spaces to contain death and even to avoid it. Places like graveyards, mortuaries, mausoleums. And yet, media is infatuated with the mystery of death. Media is obsessed with death. Some of the top television shows are about murder and mysteries and the zombie apocalypse. From shows like Matlock and Murder, She Wrote, to Psych, to dystopian shows like Stranger Things or The Walking Dead, we are obsessed with death. But only death that is far removed from our lives, far removed from real life. Only death that happens in bizarre ways with crime-fighting resolve. Only death that happens in the future in the context of apocalyptic tragedy. We ultimately avoid the realness of death, but Scripture causes us to look it in the face. And in real ways, Scripture causes us to face not only physical death, but even more importantly for our time together this morning, it causes us to face spiritual death. We see this in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read those once again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a devastating and dark and bleak picture of reality. And it's very reminiscent of Romans 1 through 3, isn't it? In fact, uh, the pastor John Stott mentioned and commentating on these verses said that these three verses encapsulate the entire message of Paul in Romans 1 through 3. And in these verses, he unpacks what is called homardiology. I know, it's a big word. Homardiology is simply the doctrine of sin. And he tells us three things about sin and ourselves outside of God. He says we're dead in sin, verse 1. He says we walk in sin, verse 2. And we are slaves to sin in verse 3. First, we are dead in sin. The text is clear. People aren't partially spiritually dead. No, we are born dead, dead spiritually. We are fully and completely dead and totally depraved. And notice that Paul uses two words for our deadness here. He uses the words trespasses and sins. Why both, Paul? Why both? Isn't one enough? The word trespass means to actively cross a boundary or intentionally veer from the right path. It is to perpetually cross that no trespassing sign that you may have when you were a kid. 
while the word sin means to fall short of a standard. Together, both of these words, it has been noted that these two words cover the positive and negative, active and passive aspects of our human condition. Outside of God, we're dead in sin. Now, this doesn't mean that we are all as bad as we can be all the time. But it does mean that sin permeates and touches all of our lives, our thoughts and actions. Our family loves the beach, or as some call it around here, the coast. We love to go to the beach, the coast, and our kids love to be buried in sand. Oh, they love it. There's not a single ounce of claustrophobia in either of them. And the sand burial combined with dips in the water is all fun, fine and dandy, until it comes time to leave, right? And the sand is all over them. One of the last times we went to the beach, Kate, my wife, endearingly said, my housewife, theologian wife, said this, our sin is like the sand on us at the end of a day at the beach. It's in every nook and cranny. It's in our hair and our pores. We can't brush it off. It must be thoroughly washed off. Sin, like the sand, permeates our body, heart, and mind. We are buried to death in sin. And you can read of how we got there in the first three chapters of the Scriptures, the first three chapters of Genesis. In many ways, Paul here is setting the record straight, pulling from all of Scripture. Paul is setting the record straight that all of humanity is, outside of God, sinful. We are dead in sin. Two, Secondly, we, we walk in sin. Outside of God, we are truly the walking dead, following the counsel of the world. In Psalm 1, we read of two paths of life. In Psalm 1, we read two paths, a path of life and blessing, and then a path of death and wickedness. Paul is picking those, those paths up in this section. Paul's picking up the psalmist's message here and saying, outside of God, we are all walking a highway to hell, following or taking GPS direction from the prince of the air, who is Satan, the ruler of the unseen world mentioned earlier in the letter. And God makes it clear here that Satan is at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience. He is a real enemy, a real accuser, who desires to derail and spiritually murder people and keep them in darkness and death. Our text says he is at work in this world. And I believe it's easy for us to belittle or dismiss the work of Satan. But he is active, as Paul says here. He's active in our church. He's active in the world. Well, Paul has made it clear that outside of God, we are dead in sin, and we are dead people walking in sin. And third, we are a slave to sin. We may not like the idea of it, but we are all slaves to sin, enslaved to someone or something. Jesus, knowing this, said, we can't serve two masters, can't be slaves of two masters. And we are truly either mastered by Christ or mastered by the passions of our flesh. We are either mastered by God's will back in verse 11 of chapter 1, or we are carrying out the fallen will of the flesh, the body and the mind mentioned here in verse 3. 
Paul's making it clear that our souls are holistically enslaved to sin outside of God, and by nature we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, children of wrath who are not living in the Spirit, but living in the gratification or desires of the flesh. Over the centuries, philosophers and psychologists have proven that we naturally seek pleasure. We are all utilitarian, as they say. We all are pleasure seekers, seeking delight in what feeds the hunger of our hearts. We're all hungry. We are naturally hungry for what meets our desires, our pleasures, our affections. And those desires are actually given by God, but we twist and manipulate by sin in our sinfulness. And because of this, we deserve God's wrath. Wrath is our middle name. We are children born dead in sin and born into wrath. This all doesn't sound and look good, right? This is devastating. This is a bleak picture. Our sin is serious, and the world, the flesh, and the devil mentioned in these three verses are in alliance against God and will stop at nothing to have and to hold your soul. But God... But God, two of the most powerful words, two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God makes the dead alive. It's a popular image to illustrate the way God saves or or gives newness of life by talking about the sinner as one who is kind of like wading in the ocean, kind of striving in the ocean. He's doing everything he can. This person's doing everything they can to to stay on top of the water, right, as as they're drowning. And then Jesus throws a life preserver and says, hey, grab this. And the person with their own strength grabs hold of the life preserver, grabs hold of God, and is saved. But this is not what we see in Ephesians 2. This isn't what we see in Ephesians 2. No, people are spiritually dead. A sinner is a drowned person lying on the ocean floor. There is no treading, no striving. There is only death and sin. But God, by his grace and mercy and love, scoops his child up from the ocean floor and breathes life into him just as he did in Genesis 1, the beginning of creation. He breathes new life into man and regenerates him, he, him or her, spiritually. He does this work completely and he says, let there be life to the dead. And he gives a new heart, new life, new affections. A wild picture of this in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 36 and 37. We read just a section earlier. We don't have to turn there, but let me give you the synopsis. In those chapters, God takes Ezekiel to Death Valley, a valley of dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel to proclaim his word to the dead, to the dry bones. And as he is preaching bone by bone, sinew by sinew, skeletons form and then whole people form. And God gives new life, a new spirit to them. It's an incredible scene of our life-giving and resurrecting God. And it's all, it's all to the praise and glory of God. All of it. 
Beloved, only God can make the dead live. Only God can breathe life into the lifeless. Only God can bring the spiritually dead to spiritual life. And it is fully by his grace and resurrection power that we, the church, are saved, can be saved. That's what we see in these verses in 6 through 10. And raised us, look at, them, look at them with me, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we have been born again, given spiritual life, then we have been saved and raised with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's present tense. We're not waiting for this to happen fully. We're waiting for Christ's return. We're waiting for final consummation. But we actually aren't waiting to be seated with Christ today. We live in the already and the not yet. We need to grasp this. In and through Christ, this is a reality for the church. And our salvation, individually and corporately as a church, displays now and will display in the coming age, that future age mentioned in verse 7 and also in verse 21 of chapter 1, that our salvation displays the immeasurable riches of God. Our salvation by pure and sovereign grace in Christ Jesus displays the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward the church. And then for definitive clarification, if that wasn't enough, like a good teacher, Paul repeats his argument. He repeats himself in that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone. There in verse 8, he repeats, by grace we have been saved through faith. Though our salvation is fully of God's grace, his grace being unmerited goodness and favor toward us, we still have the responsibility of responding in faith. Turning from our sin and turning toward Christ. Turning from a life of death and turning toward life. In this verse, Paul is speaking of our regeneration, being born again, and then our conversion and our sanctification, which is all enabled by God's grace all of it. For as he says in verses 9 through 10, none of this is our doing. It is all a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast or claim to spiritually save themselves. No, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works. What a fascinating place for Paul to land his theological plane, right? He lands it in good works. After all of his just attestation of what God has done, he lands the plane in works. What's that about? Well, we are saved by God, by his grace, in accordance with his glorious mercy and love for us in Christ. And we are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Make no mistake, Paul is making it clear that just as we have been chosen, predestined, and redeemed in Christ before the foundation of the world, as he said back in chapter 1, we are also created in Christ for good works 
which God prepared beforehand at that same time that we should walk in them actively. Make no mistake, Paul is making it clear that just as we have been chosen and predestined, we are called to good works. By grace, through Christ, Christians are no longer then the walking dead, but we are walking life, pointing those in the church and outside the church all around us toward God who is the giver of life. And we do this through our good works. And I want us to think about this for a moment. Have you considered that God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does? Our good works are for the benefit of those around us, our families, our workplace, our churches, one another. So how are you serving and walking in good works. How are you, as Paul mentioned earlier in chapter 1, displaying God's work of salvation in you by stirring others up to love and good works? Our salvation and our works are connected. Now, we aren't saved. We aren't saved by the things we do. We are made right with God by faith alone in Christ. He is our assurance of salvation. We look to him alone as our identity and our security, but we are saved for good works, make no mistake. And our good deeds are the fruit of the root. They are the fruit of regeneration and the fruit of Christ working in and through us in our sanctification. And he wills and works in us for his glory alone. And ultimately, beloved, ultimately we stand before him, quorum Deo, because of the righteousness of Christ that has been given, imputed to us by pure grace. But we stand and serve one another and those outside of this world, quorum mundo, through our good works that display Christ's righteousness in and through us. Well, at the close of chapter 1, Paul offered up a prayer of benediction, intercession, and exaltation of Christ. That prayer upheld the immutable and immeasurable power of God. And where is the power of God most clearly seen? Where is the power of God most clearly seen? In these verses, it is seen in our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And the heavenly power and beauty and majesty and glory of salvation through Christ is displayed in local churches like those in Ephesus and local churches here in Edgewood like EBC. And it's this salvation and work of Christ that makes the dead alive and the stranger of God a citizen and saint of God. So point two, from stranger to citizen and and saint. We see this in verses 11 through 22. Let me read those. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... 
in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to us who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There has always been a two-party imbalance in the world. There's always been an in-crowd and an out-crowd. There's always been an inside and an outside. There has always been those who are welcomed and those who are alienated. There's the popular and there's the rejects. There's the jocks and there are the band nerds. I was one. There are the right wing and the left wing. There's the elites and the non-elites. There's the educated and non-educated, the high class, the low class, the stranger and the citizen. And in a very real sense, Segregation is alive and well, even today, based on politics or class or ethnicity or tax bracket or education or preference, hobby, ability, or gifting. And in the church at Ephesus, there was a kind of segregation that was deeper than class divide. It was deeper than ethnic divide. It was deeper than cultural divide, and it was deeper than political divide. It was all of those things, but it was deeper than all of these It was a segregation, a division based on whether or not you could be considered a redeemed person of God. This was the Jew-Gentile divide, the circumcised-uncircumcised divide, the Israel-non-Israel divide. Writing on this chasm between Jew, God's people, and Gentile, the world's people, one commentator said this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentile said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl named a Gentile boy, the funeral of that, of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. The Jew-Gentile divide is the deepest stranger-citizen divide in all of history. And in these verses, in light of salvation by grace in Christ, Paul zooms in He makes us look and zoom in, and he shows us that God doesn't take division and disunity lightly. And he boldly addresses the Jew and the Gentile here. I want us to notice this. 
Starting with verse 11, we read, therefore. Now, when we read the word therefore, we should always ask, what's it there for? What's it there for? He is saying, therefore, in light of all that I've said in chapter 1, in light of all that I've said in the last 10 verses about the gift of salvation that has come in Christ to sinners by sovereign grace, Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which made in the flesh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Let's stop there for a moment. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision drew a line between God's people and the world's. Circumcision was a thick boundary line that separated God's people and the world, Jew and Gentile. And Paul continues, verse 12, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's stop there again. In the first three chapters of the Ephesians letter, In these first three chapters, there is only one imperative to the church. One. All the imperatives come later. There's only one imperative, and that is remember. Remember. Paul wants his audience, the church in Ephesus and the church of today, to remember that Gentiles, all of us, by the way, were strangers to the love and mercy and grace of God, strangers to the promises of God, the covenants of God, the hope of God, the salvation of God that has been revealed in the Old Testament. Gentiles were and are doomed, but now. But now, verse 13, notice the pattern in this chapter. We read, but God, back in verse 4, but here in this verse we read, but now. In Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Oh, in the cross of Christ, the Gentile has been brought near. In Christ, the Gentile can be a recipient of all of God's promises, all of God's covenants, his grace, his mercy, and salvation. In Christ, the Gentile is made one of God's people. From God's promise to bless the people through Abraham in Genesis 12 to God's promise in number six to bless us, keep us, to shine upon us, and to give us peace, this has all been fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, people move from alienation to reconciliation. In Christ, we move from alienation from one another to reconciliation with one another. And there's only one way that this is made possible. One way. And that is through Christ, who is our peace. That's what Paul says here. In verses 14 and 15, we read, Christ himself is our peace, who has made us one and has broken down, okay? Has broken in his body the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Brothers and sisters, peace is a person. It is Jesus He is the peace of God embodied, and he is bringing peace, and him being peace has torn down the wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. He has torn down all walls within the church. When Paul wrote this letter, there was a real physical wall. We need to, history matters. There was a real physical wall in the temple, and that that physical wall had written on it a death penalty 
for any Gentile that crossed it. History matters. Before Christ, the temple was a segregated place. Have you considered this? The place of worship was a segregated place. But that physical temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. But even more importantly, the true and spiritual temple, Christ himself, Christ calls himself the temple in John 2, was torn down in his crucifixion. This is why Christ says, tear this temple down and I will raise it in three days. For he was speaking about himself. In Christ's crucified body, he bore our sins. He bore the sins of his people. In his crucified body, the wall of hostility, separating Jew and Gentile, brown or black or white person, slave and free, slave or free, men or women, the wall of hostility has been destroyed. Peace has come in his body being crushed. Peace has come in the law of Moses that ethnically divided the Jew and the Gentile has come. And in and through Christ, verse 15, one new man was made in place of two. Here's Paul's point. In Christ, there is a new humanity, a new community, a new covenant family, the church, a place where strangers are made citizens, a place where strangers are made saints by pure grace. Beloved, Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Through him, reconciliation has come. This is what we see here as Paul presses further in verses 16 and 17. And he reconciled us, us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, speaking of Gentiles, and peace to those who were, notice this, near. Who's, who's near? The Jews. It's referring to the Jews here. Both parties needed peace and reconciliation through who? Jesus. And through him, all people have access by one spirit to the Father. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. Jesus changes everything. He is the Prince of Peace. He's interestingly called that in the Old Testament. He is the Prince of Peace who has brought reconciliation to the church. He has brought peace and he has bought peace in his blood so that we can walk in peace. And because of all of this, there is no room for ethnic or cultural pride, animosity, or malice in the church. There's no room for division based on skin color or gender or culture or education or anything else for that matter in the life of the church. The church is a redeemed and unified body one in Christ by the Spirit because Jesus has broken down the walls and has brought peace in and through the gospel. And this sort of radical peace and unity is really what separates the church from the world, doesn't it? And so if we build walls of hostility, we look no different than the world. And if you cruise through social media or the news right now, you flip it on for a moment, the world is a very divided place. Can we all agree on that? And the church right now oftentimes looks like a really divided place. Can we all agree on that? 
We're so often sinfully segregated by politics or ethnicity or you name it. So what's Paul's remedy? What's Paul's remedy for division? What's Paul's remedy for disunity at a local church level? Simply put, it is Jesus. Simply put, it's Jesus. And we want to see one another and welcome one another as citizens and saints and members of his city, household, and temple. Look with me at verses 19 through 22 once again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Remember, Ephesus in Roman society was known for its political allegiance to Caesar. And Ephesus orbit around its other allegiance, the goddess Artemis and her temple, which sat in the center of the city. But here, Paul is calling the church to a better city and a better society that is built upon a better foundation. The foundation of the apostles, prophets, and Christ himself. Who are the apostles and prophets? That's the question, right? Who are the apostles and prophets? It is those in the first century who were appointed by Christ, even Paul himself was an appointed apostle of Christ. Calls himself that, along with servant and slave of Christ. Apostles and prophets were those first century Christians who were appointed by Christ to proclaim God's word and God's gospel. Since both the apostles and prophets had the primary role of preaching and teaching, the foundation is the teaching itself. And so ultimately, the foundation Paul is speaking of here is the foundation of the word and gospel. Beloved, the church rises or falls by its faithful proclamation of God's word and gospel, right? The church rises or falls in the faithful proclamation of this book. May we stand firm upon it. And the church, the new humanity, the new house and temple of God is built upon this foundation. With who is its cornerstone? Christ himself. To Paul's point, at the center of a true and faithful church is Christ himself. And so, Jesus is, is to be the very center of our life together as a church. Can we also agree on that? Jesus is to be the very center of our life together as a church. If we lose Christ, we will lose ourselves in ungodly division. Walls of hostility will be erected over preferences and petty differences. If we lose Christ as the center, our church will topple and crumble. Not the building, the people. The church. 
If we lose Christ as the center, we will become a broken family. If we lose Christ as the center, we will alienate one another and no longer be the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. This is why we have those warnings in Revelation 2. We looked at one last week. We're not to lose our first love. Who is our first love, church? Jesus. If we lose Christ as the center, if we lose Him as our first love, we will become a dead church. Nothing but Christ should be the center of our unity. Nothing but Christ should be the center of our faith. Nothing but Christ should be the center of our life together as a local church. And it takes the whole church to do this work. It takes the whole church to keep Christ at the center of the church. So let's keep Christ at the center of our conversations. Christ at the center of our ministries. Christ at the center of our members meetings. Christ at the center of our park playdates, our park meetups. We should keep Christ at the center of everything that we do as a church. And we don't just do it because I said it. Or a pastor here said it. We do it because God's word says it. Paul is calling us to a high view of God's grace in Christ. He is calling us to a high view of the church, the place where strangers are made citizens and saints are made into the temple of God. And so may we have this same view and may we pray to have this same view as Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in his word. Well, we should close. In this passage, God has called us to think deeply about spiritual death so that we may know and think deeply about spiritual life and unity in Christ, unity in the church. And if you are here today and you're thinking, I, I'm dead. I don't know Christ. I'm not a part of a church. I'm dead. God has a gift for you. Maybe you're here today and, and you need to be reminded of what it is to walk in peace and walk in newness of life as a church. God has a gift for you. From one dying man to you all, dying men and women, this is the hope and life of the gospel that brings the dead to life and makes the stranger a citizen and saint. In the beginning, God created all things, and they were good. He created man and woman, and they were very good. But the first human beings, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and rebelled against him. They denied the good and gracious authority of God over their lives, and sin entered the world through them. And it's not just Adam and Eve who sinned. We know from Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room is a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, as we saw in this passage. And because of our sin, the final destiny of unbelieving people.
people, unbelieving sinners, is eternal judgment in a place called hell. We will all one day die, and we will all one day be judged. And our biggest problem isn't a sickness. Our biggest problem isn't anxiety or addiction or fear or political upheaval. Our biggest problem is the penalty for sin. It's our biggest problem. But God. But God, being gracious and merciful, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He lived and died on a cross. On the cross, he took the punishment for your sin and mine, the punishment for your rebellion and mine. As a substitute, he died in our place. But three days later, he got up from the dead. He was resurrected, and he later ascended, and he reigns in power and glory. This is what we looked at in the last, in the last sermon. He reigns in power and glory, and he will one day return. And there is only one response to this good news. There is only one response to this good news, and that is repentance and faith. Repentance, turning away from that sin that leads to physical and spiritual death, and turning toward Christ in faith, turning toward Christ for life today. We aren't saved because he grew up in a Christian home. We aren't saved because of a childhood decision to follow Christ that we've abandoned. We aren't saved by the good things that we've done. We aren't saved by simply being a good person. No, repentance and belief in Christ alone is what saves us. And those who believe in the good news of the gospel hold the promise of eternal life in heaven as a citizen and saint with Christ forevermore. This is the gospel. This is our foundation. This is our life. And this is the message that we never get over. If you have questions about any of this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk to you about death and life, about what it is to be a stranger made a citizen in Christ, of a better kingdom, a better homeland, and a better humanity. So what is your hope and life? When you die, where will you go? I pray that you would find life in Christ today, tomorrow, and the next into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing a way, the way, the truth, the life. Thank you for providing Jesus for sinners. Lord, may we run to him now. Looking to him as our peace. Looking to him as our grace. Looking to him as mercy. Lord, we thank you for what you have done, are doing, and will do through the gospel. And we ask that you would convict us of sin and that you would bring us before your throne, not just day after day, but second by second, for our good and your glory. It's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen.